Good morning, everyone. Wow. Okay. Thank you for coming, Gigi. Good morning. This morning we have the privilege of studying Parshas Vayeshev and to uh, continue with the story last left off. So as always, at first we'll look at an overview of the whole Parsha and then get into a specific section, some of the text itself. And our Parsha, of course, picks up where last week's Parsha left off. The end of last week's Parsha delineated in detail the lineage, the genealogy of Esav. And so this week's Parsha picks up with Yaakov. The Eila told us Yaakov, Yosef ben Shvasre Shana. These are the offspring of Yaakov. And then rather than list all the offspring, we only list Yosef, who's 17 years old when he is a shepherd. And nevertheless, the text calls him Vuhu Na'ar, as B'nai Bilav, as B'nai Zilpa Neshei Aviv. Yosef is 17 years old and yet still referred to as a Na'ar. And Yosef brings, and the Rashi of course fills in, that he was consumed with vanity, with his appearance, at least on the surface. So it looks like he was consumed with the um, pursuits of youth with vanity, with the way that, that he looked. Of course, I skipped the opening. Pasuk, Vayeshev Yaakov, Eretz Megurei Aviv, Eretz Kenan. Our parsha is called Vayeshev Yaakov. Yaakov, at this point of his life, Rashi quotes, Bikesh Yaakov, Leshev Bashalva. Yaakov wants what everyone in the world wants, what everyone retires down to South Florida wants. Some peace and serenity, some tranquility. Bikesh Yaakov, Leshev Bashalva. His life was defined by turmoil, by deception, by being on the run. And all he wanted was some serenity, some peacefulness. And did he achieve it? Did he get it? No. Rashi quotes the Chazal, tell us, because when it comes to tzaddikim, it is that aggravation that stirs, it's the agitation, the tension, which, um, which stirs and provokes them towards, uh, towards greatness. We all know this uh, storyline, if there's any parsha, it's this one that everybody knows, that Yaakov loved Yosef. It's interesting, the text, when it describes Yaakov's love of Yosef, does not call him Yaakov, but describes him as the Yisrael Ahav es Yosef Mikol Banav. It's in his capacity as Yisrael that he shows preferential treatment that he favors Yosef. Not in his capacity as Yaakov. Right? It's not for now, but we have to understand what does it mean when he's called Yaakov? Why is he sometimes called Yisrael? And what is the implication of the text in that specific circumstance referring to him by that name? So here it's not a coincidence that in describing his favoritism towards Yosef, he's not called Yaakov. It's not Yaakov who favors Yosef, but it is Yisrael. Why does he love Yosef? He is the child of his, of, uh, his advanced age. And uh, he loves him. And he makes him a ksonas pasim. He makes him a multicolored coat, as we know. And what happens with favoritism among brothers? Jealousy results. And you know, it's fascinating, we've studied in the past, also not for now, the uh, really diverse way that our rabbis approach this text. Are we allowed to see within our avos, within our great patriarch's fault, are we allowed to extrapolate and learn lessons for our own parenting, for our own marriage, for our own behavior? Can we see them as human and therefore as relatable for us? Or are the avos somehow perfect and any suggestion... Any implication, any uh, suggestion that they are imperfect is only our responsibility to understand it differently, to look a little bit closer and to assign, um, to assign a favorable outcome for them. So there's no text where this debate rages more than this one. 
Is Yaakov at fault for favoring Yosef? Is this somehow part of the divine plan? Are our avos beyond reproach? Or can we see them as human? The Nitziv famously and Rav Hirsch are not afraid to see blame. They talk about the parenting skills of Yitzchak and Rivka that resulted in an Esav. And they also talk about to learn from here the mistake of favoring. And what happens and what results when one child is favored more than another. So the brothers feel are overwhelmed with a sense of jealousy. They hate him. Not just jealousy, bless you. They actually hate Yosef. And they can't talk to him anymore. What happens is, we spoke about this in the Shalom Bayes seminar um, with the Gottman approach, uh, the concept of negative sentiment override, NSO, and positive sentiment override. The idea that all relationships, perhaps most poignantly in marriage, but in every arena and area of relationship, we have filter, we have a pair of glasses that we wear. And when we see the other person in a favorable light, when we've highlighted in our mind their positive qualities, when we feel love and affinity towards them, they could do no wrong. Everything they do is wonderful. Everything they do is right. We see them with a positive sentiment override. We excuse um, their bad behavior and blame it on the circumstances, not internal qualities. We give the benefit of the doubt. We look the other way. We describe things as cute idiosyncrasies rather than annoying habits. There's a positive sentiment override. And when we wake up in the morning, when there is friction in a relationship, the other person when they wake up in the morning, is wrong before they ever open their mouth. They say, good, mor- good morning? How dare you say good morning? It's not a good morning. I had to wake up next to you. What's good? There's a negative sentiment override. Every action, every choice, every word is filtered through a negative uh, filter. There's a negative sentiment override. In Gottman and in the Shalom Bias classes, we talk more at length about the ratio, the proportion of positive sentiment override and how to change that pair of glasses so we see the person in that way. I shared then, and I'll tell you now quickly, you, uh, you see this in the Torah, not the Torah, in the Hebrew language, uh, choice of words to describe a son-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Yeah. How do you say a son-in-law in Hebrew? A chasen, a chatan. How do you say a daughter-in-law, a kala? We came, we lost words, there's no more words, we ran out of words. Why can't we find any more words? That's what they are. They married 30 years, you kids. He stole the chasan and she stole the kala. There's no other Hebrew. That's what they are. If you look, the Torah calls them that. Um, chasnav. It says Lot took his sons-in-law. He took his, uh, the chasanim, his sons-in-law. That's the Torah's word. There's no other words. So Rav Chaim Kanievsky says, <clears throat> when our child is engaged, this isn't always true, but I think for the most part it's true. When your child is engaged, the individual to whom they're engaged can do no wrong. That future son-in-law is perfect. He's amazing. You're telling the world what a special man he is and you wait on him hand and foot and you just want him to be happy and you overlook whatever shortcomings he has and you look the other way and you give the benefit of the doubt and you have an enormous positive sentiment override. And the same is true with the potential of future daughter-in-law. So says Rechaim Kanievsky, the secret to positive or to good relationships between children-in-law and parents-in-law is to always see them the way you did during that period of engagement. If they remain the chassan and the kala forever, things will work out well. It's the moment you forgot that they were the chassan and the kala, they became part of the family a little too much that you felt comfortable with the criticism, that's when you get into problems. So why am I sharing this? Because that's what happens here. The brothers have no use. They withdraw from the relationship from, with Yosef. They're done with him. They're done with him. 
They're so jealous of him, they have a hatred towards him, and the hatred of him, they can't speak to him. There is a negative sentiment override. He can do no right. He can do no right in their eyes. They're not even capable of having civil conversation with him. Yosef begins to have his dreams. We all know the dreams. And Yosef makes the mistake of sharing his dreams. And he receives criticism. Not just from the brothers, but from his father himself. Yaakov is critical of Yosef's dreams. I saw this in a sefer, a sefer by uh, Rav Chaim Kohn, who's known as the Chalban, the milkman of Yerushalayim. Just its own uh, history, how a milkman comes to have a wonderful set of svarim. But in it he asks... Why is Yaakov upset at Yosef for his dream? Do we control our dreams? How could you be upset at someone for their dream? You could be upset at someone for sharing the dream. You could be upset at somebody for pursuing, actualizing the dream, flaunting the dream. But the language of Yaakov is he's upset or disappointed in Yosef for even having the dream. Do we control our dreams that Yaakov can in fact be disappointed with Yosef? An interesting question, he has a whole essay on it. So Yosef shares his dreams, and the brothers respond, of course, negatively. They want to kill Yosef. Reuven intervenes and says, throw him in the pit. Then Yehuda intervenes and says, let's pull him out of the pit and let's sell him. And then they dip the coat in blood. They bring it back to Yaakov, and they tell him Yosef was killed by a wild animal. And Yaakov is inconsolable. He's not able to be consoled. And we'll see momentarily why that is. Our narrative, our greater story is interrupted for the story of Yehuda and Tamar, one of the most bizarre stories, of course, in, in the Torah. <clears throat> We've studied in another context. This is the progenitor of Mashiach. Mashiach results from the most salacious and scandalous t- stories imaginable. Mashiach is the result, Mashiach ben David is the result here of, of Lot and his daughters, because one is Moav, Me'av, a story of incest, and then Yehuda, and Tamar, and David, and Bathsheba, and so on. Why does Mashiach come from such a scandalous and salacious lineage? But this is the uh, section of the Parsha that in school the teachers uh, often uh, skip or uh, struggle to exactly explain what does it mean that Tamar lay with Yehuda, you know, what they snuggle and... Uh, Watch TV, what exactly does that mean? All the teachers struggle. So, this is the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Yehuda has two sons, they die. Torah gives us the reason why they died. Tamar doesn't, uh, is uh, left without children. She wants love right marriage. Yehuda doesn't provide it. And then she, of course, dresses herself as a prostitute on the side of the road, solicits, uh, or Yehuda solicits her, her services. She is not revealed. And uh, later, when he challenges who is this pregnant woman, she has held on to his signet and his staff, to his uh, belongings. She said, whoever this belongs to, that is the father of this child. And Yehuda, in a great moment, she showed great courage by not wanting to embarrass him. He shows courage by making the admission, Tzadka Mimeni, she is more righteous than I. And this is also consistent with his name. Because the word Yehuda both means to be grateful and thankful. Hapa modes Hashem leah names him Yehuda. But to be modeh al also means to, be, to make an admission. Yehuda makes this great admission. Tzadka mimeni. She is more righteous than I. She should be left to live. How could Tamar function as a prostitute? 
Why is the great patriarch Yehuda soliciting the services of a prostitute? Is this the way to conceive a child who will be the progenitor of Mashiach? Why is Yehuda ready to have her killed? This story deserves its own analysis. We did a few years ago. It's on the it's on the Shul website. Yosef is taken down to Mitzrayim. He's purchased by Potiphar, and Yosef is living in exile. He lives this horrific temptation every day, where Potiphar's wife um, is trying to uh, seduce Yosef. She throws herself at Yosef, and Yosef is a young man who has no reason in the world to show self-control. There's no reputation to protect. There's no family that he could become alienated from. There's no... God has done nothing but disappoint him. He was literally almost killed, left to die. He's sold into slavery. He is alienated from his family. He has every reason in the world to indulge in a little extracurricular activity. Okay, so what? She's married. After all, he's not hitting on her. She's hitting on him. So what if he would indulge? So what if he would give in? And yet he shows this absolutely incredible, incredible self-control and discipline. In fact, he almost doesn't. It says that one day he comes, He came one day to do his malacha, and Chazal understand, what does it mean he came that day to do his malacha? It wasn't to vacuum and clean the shades and curtains. It wasn't to uh, pay off, uh, to balance the checkbook. What it means, He came home that day to do malachto, that was it. He was done. The temptation, the seduction, every single day, Yosef was ready to cave. And it was the perfect day. There was no one at home. There were no security cameras. There was no one who was going to find out. And Yosef nevertheless flees at the last moment. He runs. She, of course, grabs his cloak. And we know the wife of Potiphar falsely accuses Yosef, and this lands him in prison. You know, most people don't focus on, but we learn in next week's Parsha. Who does Yosef ultimately marry? Osnas Bas? Potiphar. Can you imagine? Imagine what that Pesach Seder is like. You know, imagine, imagine what, that, what that Thanksgiving dinner is like. You know, it's Yosef sitting opposite his mother, close to his mother-in-law. Let's remember the history there. We often don't uh, focus on that, that uh, result, that conclusion. Yosef ends up in prison, and in prison he meets the cupbearer and the baker. They have their dreams, and Yosef interprets them. It's uh, very powerful. You know what day this was that Yosef turns to them? What day was it on the Jewish calendar that Yosef notices they are depressed and despondent and says, Hey brothers, what's going on? How can I help? What day was it? It was the day of Rosh Hashanah. Chazal tell us it was on Rosh Hashanah. And I think there's a great insight. It's very instructive that if we want a new beginning, if we want to turn things around, it's not about sitting in the corner of the prison cell bemoaning our own plight and um, sitting stewing in our own condition. But you want a new beginning, you want a Rosh Hashanah, you want to turn things around, you see someone else and you say, how can I make your life better? Because what led to Yosef's emancipation, what ultimately led to his freedom was not advocating for himself, but was the sensitivity and the interest in helping someone else. And when Yosef initiates with his prison mates and says, what's going on? Why are you so down? How can I help you? That initiation, that act of reaching out to see how he can help, that's his Rosh Hashanah. That begins the process, the journey that leads to his freedom, and not only his freedom, but leads to his rise, and not only his rise, leads to the reunion, and I don't want to give away next week's Pasha, as if you all don't know it. Okay, let's look more closely. Perak Lamed Zayin Pasuk. 
Yudches. Perak Lamed Zayin, Pasuk Yudches. It seems like it's in the middle of nowhere that we're starting, but we are in the section where yeah, the brothers are sent, the brothers are in Shechem, functioning as shepherds. Yosef is sent to go check on them, which is a very funny thing. Right? A few Pesukim earlier, it says, Yaakov turns to Yosef and he says, Your brothers are shepherds in Shechem. Go, I want you to bring some provisions to them, I want you to check on them. If you're Yaakov and you know the animosity between Yosef and his brothers, why in the world are you sending Yosef to go help the brothers? And why Shechem is a dangerous neighborhood? So why is it a dangerous neighborhood? Why does he need Yosef to check on them? What happened in Shechem? Dina is, uh, is captured and raped, and then Shimon and Levi get even. Shimon and Levi do their thing. By the way, I didn't mention this last week. Last Shabbos morning, I spoke about... Um, I spoke about uh, the Gidanashek commemorating the fact that Yaakov wrestled with the angel through the night and that the Rashbam and others say um, the reason that we don't eat the Gidanashek, the biblical prohibition to not eat the sciatic nerve, commemorates the victory, the triumph of Yaakov over his adversary. But the Chizkuni is bothered. That's how you celebrate a triumph? By not doing something? You, you take home a trophy. You don't tell the winning Little League team Guys, you did it. You won. Now you have to be vegetarians for a year. You know, that's not a way to celebrate victory. You celebrate victory by having a trophy. So the Cheskuni says, the prohibition to eat the Gidanasha is not in corresponding to the victory. It's we commemorate why Yaakov was in that position to wrestle to begin with. Why was Yaakov attacked? Why did he have to spend the night wrestling? Because Vayivaser Yaakov? Levado. He was alone. He was by himself. And when you're isolated, when you're alone, you're vulnerable and you're exposed. And that's our pledge, that's our commitment. We talked about last Shabbos, the Zohar, which says 365 negative prohibitions correspond with 365 days a year. Kid Anasha corresponds with Tishabav. Tishabav was Sinaschinam. So then we leave people alone, we isolate them with the treatment of them, we marginalize them and judge them. And the antidote to Tishabav, if we want to get up off the floor, is the same antidote to the Gid Anasha. It's to not Vayivaser Yaakov Levado. So one of my Rebbeim, Rav David Miller, from the Gris Kolo, suggests, maybe it's not a coincidence, that it's the next passage, that when Dina is captured in Shechem, Levi and Shimon, the brothers, the sons of Yaakov, who had left him alone, they had abandoned him to go back for the Pachin Kitanim by himself. And that aloneness led to his injury. So they've learned their lesson. Because now Dean is captured. What do they do? They're not complicit. They're not complacent. They're not indifferent. They step up. They devise a plan. A plan Yaakov ultimately is not so happy with. But they devise a strategy and they take down the people of Shechem. So they repair. They learn the lesson immediately. In the text we see that this time they stand up for their sister when they had failed and left their brother alone and the commitment of a Jew towards another is to never leave them alone again. To never leave them alone. So here, the brothers are in Shechem as shepherds and Yaakov says, whoa, Shechem is a rough neighborhood. They don't love us in Shechem. We don't go over so well in Shechem. Yosef, do me a favor. Go check on your brothers and see how they're doing. And that leads to where we are. Parak Lamatayin, chapter 37, verse 18. They see him from a distance, they see Yosef coming from the distance, and as he's yet approaching, they conspire with one another. Let's let's kill him. Let's kill him. 
Now it's interesting this language. They see him from a distance. They see him from a distance. Rabbi Soloveitchik picked up on this language of they see him from a distance and writes Rabbi Soloveitchik the following. Joseph's brothers always viewed him from afar. At the moment that he tried to come close to them, they rejected him. He appeared strange to his brothers. They couldn't perceive the beauty hidden in the soul of their younger brother. His sanctity was hidden behind the curtain of his external appearance, which intervened to hide the sublime and wondrous within him. The coat of many colors, the external covered what was taking place underneath. To his brothers, his beauty was merely superficial. Only his father understood that this handsome son with the flowing locks of hair, with the dream-filled eyes that revealed both soft refinement and great strength, was given to a vision beyond the boundaries of this world and was swept along in a storm of emotion, yearnings for redemption and transcendence. Only his father understood that the dream implanted within him was directed not towards tangible goals, but towards a holy, pure existence. Only his father grasped that the deceptively attractive external reflected an internal light. The brothers, the brothers thought that personal holiness, a pure heart and a modest soul were inconsistent with Joseph's concern for his appearance. They looked at their handsome sibling with suspicion. He was guilty of paying too much attention to his physical self, adorning himself, combing his hair and his desire to attract praise. Even after his death, Yosef's real self remained hidden. He was always viewed from afar, Merachok, a cold white statue, devoid of warmth. The embalmers turned him into a frozen mummy and closed the coffin. No one recognized him for what he truly was. So the Rav sees in this word that they saw him not just describing a physical distance, they saw him off in the distance, but they saw him, they categorized him, they, they related to him, he was the far, he was afar, he was different, he was different. I think a very beautiful insight of, of the Rav. So what happens? They say to one another, Ah, look who's coming. Here comes the, here comes the dreamer, Balachalomos. Here comes the dreamer. Here comes the dreamer. Rashi says, Sorry, so they continue. Pasuchaf. Viata now. Here comes the dreamer. Let's go kill him. Vinashlicheu ba'achala baros, and we'll throw him in a pit. Viamarnu, and we'll say chayara chalasu. It's one of the wild, one of the wild animals ate him. Ah, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Here comes the dreamer. Let's kill the dreamer and see what becomes of his dreams. What do they mean by this? We'll see what becomes of his dreams. Is this sarcasm? What, what do they mean by that? So Rashi quotes, Amar Yitzchak, Mikra Omer Darsheni. Rashi quotes his Rabbi Yitzchak, that this verse says, Darsheni, understand me. Ruach HaKadosh Omeris came. Heina Omrem Nahargeyu. They said, let's kill him. Ve'akosov Messiahim v'nir'eh ma'yuchalom osav. Nir'edover mi'akum o'shelachem o'sheli. So they said, let's kill him. And Rashi interprets it, not that they, the brothers said, we'll see what becomes of his dreams. The text, the narrator, who's the narrator? The Ribbono Shalom. The Almighty, as the narrator says, okay, let's see the story unfold and see whose dreams are met. Their dream to kill him or his dreams, which will be fulfilled. So 
So Chazal say, it can't be the brothers were saying, let's see what becomes of his dreams. Because if they're about to kill him, they know they are aborting his dreams. His dreams will never see the light of day. So it can't be that they were genuinely asking, no, let's see if his dreams are fulfilled. Because they're about to kill him. So rather what, says Rashi, quoting Chazal, it is the narrator saying, you plan to kill him, you conspire to kill him? Nira Let's see whose dreams come true. Already, already, already uh, revealing, hinting to the future about what's going to happen. That's Rashi's interpretation. Look at the Ramban. The Ramban writes, "Venira Melitza derech laag, in the The Ramban interprets it as sarcasm. One of the early Sources of Jewish sarcasm. The brothers say, yeah, here comes the dreamer. Let's take him out. It's time to squash his dreams. And then let's see what becomes of his dreams. They didn't mean, let's see, because they didn't know what would become. They meant it sarcastically. Let's kill him, and then we'll see this big dreamer, what becomes of his dreams. Melitza derech laag. If he's saved, he's going to rule over us. So the Ramban references Rashi's Chazal, that it's not meant, it's, it's the narrator speaking, but the Ramban sticks with his position that this is, a, uh, that this is um, sarcasm. The Sforno also weighs in here, writes the Sforno on Pasagites, Hine bala chalomos, shesiper lanu asa chalomos laktifenu, here comes the dreamer. And the Svarno injects what he thinks the brothers were really saying about the motive of Yosef. Why did Yosef share his dreams with us, say the brothers to one another? Because he wants to provoke us to kill him, to sin against him, and then to fail God and to fail our father. Alright, let's go do it. But we'll tell dad it was a wild animal because we don't want dad to curse us. His dreams that he said he's going to rise to greatness. We will prove that his dreams were false, were erroneous. Because if he dies, he certainly is not going to rise to greatness to rule over us. These are our false dreams. He will disappear without the fulfillment of these dreams. So they conspire to kill him. And what happens when they conspire to kill him, this dreamer? By the way, the Rav points out here also that the brothers' hatred and envy of Yosef only increased when Yosef revealed his dreams. The brothers referred to him not as the Baal Ketona Sapasim. Not, here comes the... Um, in other words, what's the rough pointing out? Until now, the brothers hated Yosef. Why? Because he was favored. And what is the evidence of his being favored? He's walking around with this cloak. The coat of many colors is in the face of the brothers. He's literally wearing it and showing it off and walking around and it's in their face. I'm the favorite. But is that why they conspire to kill him? They've given up on being angry at him because he's the favorite. They don't call him the Baal Ketona Sapasim. Oh, here comes the owner of the many-colored coat. 
But rather, they say, says the Rav, here comes the Balachalomos. A Balachalomos is not a dim-witted person. He's a gifted, bright individual, a visionary leader, an innovator. Yosef possessed a prophetic spark, a charismatic personality. The brothers attempted to stop him, to squelch Yosef's dreams, but prophecy is an overwhelming force that cannot be suppressed. What they didn't like about Yosef at this point was not that he was favored. What they didn't like about Yosef is he was this charismatic, transformative leader. He had a prophecy, a vision for what he wanted to do to the world. And they, who are you? We're going to kill him. Let's end this vision. Who are you? This charismatic, beautiful, handsome, smart, intelligent. You got everything good. Who are you? And so they wanted to kill him. Pasach Comes along, Ruven. Vayishma Ruven vayatzileu miyadam. Ruven comes and he saves them. Vayomer lo nakenu nafesh. We're not killing anyone here today. We're the brothers. We're the children of Yaakov. We're not killing anyone. Vayomer aleim Ruven. Al tishbechudam. We're not killing anybody. Hashlichu oso al habor hazeh. Throw him into this pit. Asher ba midbar in the desert. Viyad al tishlichu bo. And do not put a hand on him. So that he can be saved from their hand to return to the Father. Now what's happening at the end of this Pasuk? Who's speaking again at the end of the Pasuk? This is an unusual text, right? First he's talking, Reuven's talking to them. You do not shed blood. You, don't you touch him. Now all of a sudden we shift. So that he would be saved from their hand to be returned to their father. So here the narrator comes back. It's a very unusual text. Here again, the narrator, the text Hashem is filling us in uh, with what? Motive. He's filling us in with motive. And this is what Rashi picks up on. Pasuch of Beis. Ruach HaKodesh Me'id, Ruach HaKodesh Rashi, we call narrator, Rashi calls Ruach HaKodesh. Ruach HaKodesh Me'id Ruvain, Shalom Arzos, Ela Lahatziloso, Sheavohu Vayalan Misham, Omar, Ani Bachor Vigadosh Bekulam, Lo Yetala Sirchon Ela B. Ruvain says, Ruvain's motive was to come back and save him. Why was Ruvain so concerned with saving? Why is it both on the one hand remarkable that Ruvain's the one who steps up? And yet, very understandable that Reuven's the one who stands up. And therefore what? Well, he's responsible, okay. But the oldest and the most responsible does not necessarily act the most responsible. But what's Reuven's interest? He'll get the blame. But why will he get the blame? What's Reuven's motive for killing Yosef? Let's play detectives here for a moment. CSI Canaan. <laughs> What is, Yosef, what is Reuven's motive for killing Reuven? Yosef? Reuven is the Bechor. And what is he poised to receive? A double portion. But if his position is being replaced by Yosef, if his father is showing favor and treating Yosef and replacing... By the way, would that be crazy for Yaakov? Is it out of Yaakov's realm of experience to take a younger one and treat them as the oldest one? No, Yaakov is familiar with such a... And Yaakov is now paying that forward. That just as he had done, he is taking Yosef and holding Yosef up as if he is the oldest. And so on the one hand, 
It's, it would be most understandable for Reuven to have the greatest animosity and enmity towards Yosef. It would be most understandable. Reuven is most directly threatened. His position in the family, not only his position in the family, his wealth, his future inheritance, the double portion. So on the one hand, Reuven has the greatest motive, which is also why Reuven is most concerned with saving Yosef. Because as Rashi says, Lo If it's ever discovered what happened here today, they're not going to blame the next brothers down. Who are they going to blame? Who will the detectives gather and say, have the greatest motive? Me. And that is why Ruvain intercedes, and that's why the narrator speaks up in the second half of the Pasuk, that Ruvain was well-intentioned. Ruvain wanted to save Yosef. Whether he wanted to sell Yosef, save Yosef nobly because he wanted to do the right thing, righteously, or to save his own skin, but he did intend on coming back and saving the Rashbam says similarly, Laman Atzil, HaPasag Mi'ida Ruvain, Ki Lahatzilo Nishaven, Sofo. We know Ruvain really had the right intention. He was trying to... Now why do you need to know that, by the way? Because what's his suggestion? Throw him in the pit. Now if you really want to save him, just say, hey guys, don't touch him, we're going home. Everybody, that way, we're going home. You don't have to walk with him. He can send them before us. He can walk after us. Hands off. It's time to go home. But he doesn't. He says, let's not kill him. Throw him in the pit. And that's why the narrator, Ruach HaKodesh, has to go out of its way to say, he throws him in the pit, not with the intent that he die in the pit, though we'll see in a moment. Most pits people are thrown in have snakes and scorpions and they die. But the text or the narrator is testifying that Ruvain's intent was an intermediary step. He didn't think he could win the brothers. He didn't think he could take them over. You know, you always have to know the power of persuasion. How do you shift people's opinion? So Ruvain understood the power of persuasion. What's that film with the, with the jury where he switches? Twelve angry men. So Ruvain understood the power of persuasion. You can't get them from, let's kill them, to, uh, never mind, let's go home. Everybody, you know, pick up your bags, we're going home. So he thought that incrementally, he says, no one kill them, throw them in the pit. How do you know Ruvain intended to then take them out of the pit and bring them home? Because he comes back later and he goes, one second, where's Yosef? You know he intended to bring him out. We'll speak in a moment, where was Ruvain that he had to come back? Where did he go? Bathroom break? Where, where did he go? Where was Reuven that he, had to, that he had to come back? We'll talk about it in a moment. But Reuven clearly intended on coming back. And that's what the text is testifying. The narrator is telling us, Baruch HaKodesh, that was Reuven's ultimate, ultimate idea. Now there's a number of things to say here. There's an unbelievable Orachayim. Rav Ibn Atar. Yes? The whole sentence, Kafalov, seems to be extraneous. Where was he that all of a sudden he heard? If they were talking, he was there. And if they had gone directly to Chafet, it would have made sense. Why is that sentence there? Good. So maybe Vayishma Ruvain, it's a good question. Maybe the Vayishma Ruvain is, Ruvain didn't just hear the words they were saying, he understood the implications for him. Vayishma Ruvain. Ruvain heard. He said, uh oh. You know, they may want to kill him. I got an angry mob here, and they want to kill him. But Vayishma Ruvain, Ruvain heard what this is going to mean for him. And so Vayatzileo Adam, maybe that's why, and that's he stood up, uh, stepped up in order to save them. Now Vayatzileo Adam, the Orachayim HaKadosh, Rabchayim Ibn Atar, born in Morocco, died in Israel, 
a, uh, a great biblical commentator. Actually, we studied the Orchayim and the people of the book. Mm-hmm. We spent a whole uh, session on the Orchayim. Tonight's people of the book is on the Chidah, of Chaim Yosef David Azulai, an incredible, uh, incredible figure who um, travels his entire life. It's from Turkey is an unbelievable story. The Chidah, it's tonight at 7.30. It's not too late to join people of the book if you want to. So the Orchayim HaKadosh says something here where he is a lone singular opinion. It has to do with the issue of, of uh, Emunah and Bitachon versus Bechira Chavshis. Vayatzileu miyadam. Writes the Orachayim. Perish lafisha adam ba'al Bechira v'ratzon. V'yachol laharag mishalon eschayev misa. Ma she'en ken chayaz ros. Lo yifku ba'adam im lo yeschayev misa l'shamayim. Now, what's Ruvain thinking? Ask the Orachayim. The Orachayim doesn't spell out the question, but it's implicit. He's going to throw him in a pit. And a pit in the desert is filled with snakes and scorpions. It's filled with animals that can kill someone. So you've saved him from the mob, but you're going to throw him to his animals. death. What's Ruvain thinking? What's Ruvain thinking? So the Orachim says, you know what Ruvain's thinking is the following. A person ultimately is under divine providence. And we don't die before our time. God determines when it's our time, right? So animals are subject to divine providence, hashkacha pratis, and animals could not kill Yosef if God didn't determine that Yosef should die. God controls animals. But says the Orachayim, human beings have something called free will. And free will is such a powerful and potent force that it transcends and supersedes divine providence. That if a person has evil within them, and they are determined to murder someone else, even if that someone else's time has not yet come. Even if, in the Almighty's calculation, it's not right for that person to die, free will is so powerful that A can kill B nonetheless, says the Orachai. So Ruven understood, if I keep Yosef up here among my angry mob brothers, even if God wants to protect Yosef, he can't. That, that sounds like an outrageous thing, right? Now you understand why this is a radical point of view of the Orachayim. I think the Chazanish and the Reb Chaim uh, Kanievsky don't believe the Orachayim is meant to be taken literally in this way. Some suggest the Orachayim didn't really write this. This is a radical Orachayim where the Orachayim says, and everyone else disagrees. I can give you 30 sources, not in our Parsha, but in general in Hashkafa on this issue, who disagree. Everyone disagrees. And they say, yes, we have free will, but God is the great puppeteer, He's the great chess master, who moves the pieces in a way, you know, that a person's free will can't beat out God's divine providence. If A murdered B, A is accountable for that act of murder, but it only could have happened to B if B's time had come. That's what the majority of people say. However, the Orachayim right here says no. Bechir Achavshah's free will is so powerful that free will trumps providence. And even if God determined Yosef should not die, that God can control in the pit. In the pit, God can spare Yosef from the snakes and scorpions. But up here on the ground level, where there's an angry mob who have free will, says the Orachayim, that free will God cannot interfere with. V'hu omro v'yatzileu miyadam perush miyad habechiri. And that says the Orachayim is why the verse says he saved him miyadam 
Mi'adam is a reference to free will. He saved Yosef from the brothers' free will, a free will that could have even trumped providence. Wow. It's an unbelievable Orachayim. It's a controversial Orachayim. It's a radical Orachayim. And it throws you into a loop. When people are murdered, when people suffer at the hands of someone else's free will, is that because only that can only happen if God determines for you to suffer? And the other person is the agent who we hold accountable. They're still the evil person who decided to perpetrate that evil. So they're accountable. But it couldn't have happened to the victim. The victim couldn't have received that suffering without God being okay. That's the majority view. But here the Orachayim says no. Sometimes a person can be a victim without it being God's will. It is the result, it is the consequence of the gift of free will. If you take free will to the extreme, it means that free will, God allows a world to operate where free will can create results that are inconsistent with what God Himself, with what God Himself planned. It's a radical, radical Orachayim. The reason I appreciate it, and we had a five-part series we did the last few months on the notion of Emunah and Bitachon, the reason I appreciate it is because these are complicated areas, really difficult to understand, and I appreciate knowing that within our own tradition, we have different ways of viewing it. You don't have to say to someone, this is the way, and if you don't look at it this way, you're a heretic. There are different ways of viewing the conflict of free will with divine providence, uh, human initiative, and these are complicated, complicated things. It's nice to know that others struggle with them as well. So what happens here? He throws them in the pit. All this was the planning stages. Now Yosef finally arrives. Yosef comes to the brothers. And they, Vayavshitu is a language that describes, they stripped him, right? It's not just to undress, like it's like to flay. Is that the right word, to flay? When you remove the, the skin of an animal? That, that's the same word that we use to describe removing the skin of an animal. They stripped Yosef down. Notice, what did they take off? Kutanto. And then, Kisona Sapasim. Vayikachu, Vayikachu, Vayishlichu Asa They take him and they throw him in the pit. Vahabor Reik, Ein Bomayim. The pit is empty. It has no water. So first of all, about the way they strip Yosef. It's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. Look at the Yorachayim HaKadosh. Vayavshitu Es Yosef. Lefi Pshar HaKasav Omro. Kutanto hi hachaluk. Are these the same thing or two separate things? Vayavshitu es Yosef es kutanto. They strip Yosef of his kutonas as kutonas apasim. Is that the same? Or are those two separate layers? I would have thought it's the same thing. It's just being descriptive. It's embellishing. But says the Yorachayim, it's two separate things. They took off his chaluk. The multicolored coat is the outer garment. So the chaluk is the shirt, the undershirt. 
The Ketoros Pasim is the multicolored garment that his father had made. So what should the order have been? How do you undress someone? How do we undress ourselves? You take out the outer layer, and then you take off the inner layer. So why, ask the Orchayim, does it describe they tore off the inner layer and then the outer layer? To understand, we have to understand further, says the Orchayim, Lama lo amar ves hapasim. Achein kavanas hakasufu. So says the Yerachaim. Sha'achem liolam l'ratzo lafshito l'chalutin. Ulahanicho arum. They never intended on stripping Yosef down all the way till he was naked, till he was utterly undignified. Elo lahasar me'alav ketonas hapasim. Sheba haisa hakinabo. It began with, get that coat off of him. Let's rip that coat off of him. First of all, because the coat was the symbol of everything wrong, of their jealousy and animosity. But second of all, strategically, they needed the coat. Why did they need the coat? That was the strategy. They were going to dip it in blood and bring it home to the Father. So the original plan, says the Yorachayim, was get that coat off of him. However, However, they didn't remove the coke gently and nicely and as part of their strategy before they took their own flesh and blood brother and put him in the pit. They ripped it off of him. As they went to do this act, they did it with such jealousy and callousness that they didn't end up only removing the outer layer. They stripped him naked. They literally stripped him naked. When he was thrown in that pit, he was buck naked. He was naked. It's so undignified, it's cruel. Not only did they throw him in a pit, their own brother. I mean, could you imagine living this story through Yosef's eyes? You're going to check on your brothers, the shepherds, see how they're doing, bring them food. You know there's a little tension between you, but what can you do? You have these dreams. What can you do? You're the chosen one. You know, he's checking on his brothers. And the next thing you know, they rise to kill him. He doesn't necessarily hear that part because it's only when he approaches. The next thing you know, they, sh- they tackle him and they strip him naked and they throw him in a pit. And he's sold into slavery. We'll talk about in a moment. We need another two hours. But the Midyanim and the Yishmaelim, who did he sell to? Who sold to who? How did the sale work? Is a whole sugi into itself. But the next thing you know, he's being sold to a caravan of Yishmaelim. He's naked. So he went from, he went from a prince, a charming, handsome, flowing locks of hair, charismatic, well-dressed prince in this special, dignified, regal garment to the bottom of a pit, buck naked, with no future, disheveled, dismissed, left to die from his brothers. It's unbelievable, unbelievable what he went through. It makes it all the more special, we'll get to in a few weeks, spoiler alert, but that Yosef ends up reconciling with his brothers and says, don't worry, it's me, he's all forgotten, it's water under the bridge. I'm not sure I could forget this episode, <laughs> right, so quickly. I'm not sure so quickly. And says the, says the uh, Orachayim, that's why it's in the wrong order. Yes, you take out the outer layer before the inner layer. But it says the inner layer first to tell us they were so vicious 
they were so callous. They were so... They ripped it off of him with such anger and rage that he was left totally naked and alone. And what do they do next? Here's the part. This Sforno I'm about to share with you is unbelievable. What do they do next? They lift their eyes, and they see, here comes a group of Yishma'elim coming from Gilad. They recognize. And they see on the backs of the camels, they recognize that they're sitting on the route, the trade route between Gilad and Egypt. They identify, they recognize the Yishma'elim, they are cousins, and they, oh, but what were they doing? They strip him there. They're going to kill him. Don't kill him. No one touch him. Throw him in the pit. They rip him naked. They throw him in the pit. Who's hungry for lunch? That's what the Sforno writes. Look at the Sforno. Don't you think they would have lost their appetite for a couple hours? Forget not eating for a week. Forget not eating for a day. Don't you think maybe they would have lost their appetite till they at least got home and presented the bloody coat to their father? Says the Svarno, this Pasuk tells us the callousness, the insensitivity, that to the brothers, Yosef had become so much like in the Rav's words, Meirachok. He was so much the other. He was so much the enemy. He was such an adversary that it didn't even mean anything to them what they had just done to their own brother. They sat down. Says this far now, we have other examples of righteous people in Tanakh who after they do something, that right away they recoil and realize, whoa, maybe that was beneath us. Maybe that was a little extreme. Maybe that was a little overboard. And then what do they do? The end of Sefer Shoftim, the Jewish people, the civil war with Binyamin. And it says, We'll continue with Daniel in a moment and the story with Daryavesh after throwing him into the den of lions. And the Svorno quotes a number of examples where righteous individual did unrighteous things and realized right away with some humility. But here the brothers do, and we know, by the way, we continue to suffer from this Arayomazeh. And why do we continue to suffer from this callousness Arayomazeh? Tishabov. Why were the ten martyrs killed? Asara Haruge Malchus, Medrash Echa Rabasi spells out. Because we know that the Romans were studying the text and they said, one second. Maybe they're reading the Svarno and I'm joking, obviously, they lived much later. The Romans are learning the Mikros Gedolos and they're saying, what? They stripped them naked and they sat down and they ate lunch. They said, this Scott, they never paid the price. Where were the consequences? They were never held accountable. And so they hold the Asara Haruge Malchus accountable. Tishabav and so on and so forth, that sinas chinam, we continue to suffer from ad hayom hazeh. I've quoted many times before, the commentary on the Rambam explains why do we eat karpas? Those who are in the afternoon kolo, tomorrow afternoon, I'm constantly shamelessly self-promoting. Tomorrow afternoon, we continue the men's afternoon kolo, three o'clock, we're learning Arve Psachim. Last week we spoke about karpas, 
and potato and parsley, Rabbi Taitz, the banana, what bracha do you make on karpas, what should you use as karpas. We spoke about why do we eat less than a kezayis of karpas. The whole, we spoke about the Shulchan Archarav, the Alter Rebbe, and you eat less than a kezayis of karpas, so you're not in the predicament of do you make a bracha achrona, then you have a question before the morrow, do you make a bari priyadama again. We spoke all about karpas last week. Why do we eat karpas at the Seder? Says the Rabbeinu Manoach, a commentary on the Rambam. You know why we eat karpas at the Seder table? Because karpas is a reference to karpas ketonas pasim. At the Seder table, we commemorate the liberty, we commemorate the emancipation, we commemorate the freedom from Egypt, and in that very moment that we are remembering how we came out of Egypt, we pause for a moment to remember how we got in there. So what do we do with the karpas, the pasim? We dip it. What do we dip it in? We dip it in salt water. Just as the brothers took the multicolored coat and dipped it in the blood, we begin the Seder by taking the karpas, the pasim, and dipping it in salt water to tearfully and bitterly remember the sinas chinam that began it all. See, here is the callousness of the brothers. Vayeshu they did all that they did, and they sit down to have a meal. It's unfathomable. Such callousness. They sit down to have a meal. Now, I wanted to go through, we don't have the time. Rashi quotes famously, they threw him in this pit. So Rashi quotes the Gemara in Shabbos. If you tell me the pit was empty, don't I know the pit didn't have water? So what are you telling me it didn't have water? Because it didn't have water, but it did have snakes and snakes and scorpions. So again, why would Reuven throw him in a pit to save him if it had snakes and scorpions? And the Gemara in Shabbos says, a pit with snakes and scorpions, a human cannot survive. So that's where the Orachayim came in and said, I have a choice. I'm trying to save Yosef. I can leave him vulnerable to free will, or I could put him in a pit where God can control the animals. That's where the Orachayim came to his conclusion. But he throws him in this pit. The pit did not have water, but it did have the chashem va'akravim. I wanted to go through, we don't have the time. The Gemara and Shabbos just relates to Sunday night as Hanukkah, for those following at home. So the Gemara and Shabbos derives that you're not allowed to have a, uh, your, your menorah, your Hanukkah, cannot be higher than... Cannot be higher than Esrim Amma. The Gemara says, Amar of Kahana Darshav Nasan Bar Minyomi Mishmei Derebi Tanchum, Ner Shalchanaka Shinicha Lamala Mi Esrim Amma, Psula. A menorah that's higher than 20 Amma, 30 feet, is invalid. How? Kisuku Kamaboy. Just like a sukkah can't be too tall, and a mavoy, the laws of an Erev, for our purposes, can't be too tall, fine. The Gemara then continues. So everybody wants to know, what does one thing have to do with the other? What's the flow of the Talmud? Why do you tell me the law of a Chanukiah can't be higher than 20 Yama? And the next thing you tell me about a pit that it didn't have water, but it had Nechashim what is the connection between these two between these two statements? The Torah Tamima says there is no connection other than the fact that it's the same Balmemra, the same author 
made both statements, so that's why we continue in that way. I wanted to share, we don't have time, the Ksav Sofa, the Maram Shik. there are many, many different perspectives. What can we learn about Hanukkah from this, from this story about Yosef and, and the pit? About Pirsume uh, Nisa, about a hidden miracle, revealed miracle. There are a lot of different approaches that try to uh, show that the combination or the flow of these two statements, there's a lot to learn from. Okay, there's a lot more to do here. Let me, let me, you have two more minutes? Okay, two more minutes. Two more minutes. So what happens? The brothers are in the middle of breaking bread. They're having this delicious meal. And all of a sudden they raise their eyes and they see, Orchos Yishma'ilim. There's Yishma'ilim coming. And by the way, parenthetically, Rashi quotes Chazal, normally this trade route they carried on the back of the camels, terribly smelly, odorous, miserable spices. But you see how God protected at Sadiq Yosef, that on this very, didn't protect him from being stripped naked and thrown into pit of snakes and scorpions, but at least on the journey from Shechem down to Egypt, he got to go business class instead of coach. He was traveling with the camels with the positive fragrance. You know, they handed him the warm uh, washcloth instead of... Uh, he got to at least go with the positive fragrance instead of the normally terribly terrible odor and, uh, and smell. So Yehuda, Yehuda sees what's happening. Now Yehuda steps in. One second. What benefit do we have to kill our brother and to cover his blood? What do you mean kill the brother? I thought they agreed not to kill him. They're throwing him in the pit. Well, that was Ruvain's intent was to save him. The brothers thought they were still killing him in the pit. Right? So what should we do instead? All of a sudden, Yehuda has a conscience. Our brother is our flesh. So, and our brothers will hear. So let's sell him to the Yishma'ilim rather than kill him. By the way, Chazal were incredibly critical of Yehuda. Why were they incredibly critical? Because Yehuda too didn't say, you know, what are we doing? Let's, let's take him home with us. This is crazy. Yehuda too stood up, but he didn't intervene fully. He compromised. And you see the righteous, when it comes to morality, Chazal say, the righteous should never make a pshara when it comes to morality. You don't compromise on morality. Yehuda made a compromise. Well, sell him instead of killing him. He shouldn't have compromised. But what's this language? Ma betza. Yehuda says ma betza. Translate the word betza. What benefit? Why is Yehuda making a calculation about benefits? What benefit is he talking about? What benefit is there to us? So look at this unbelievable kliyakar. Says the kliyakar, ma betza shel mamon What financial benefit is there to us if we leave him in a pit to die? Again, you want to add to the layers of callousness here. Listen, if we're going to get rid of our brothers, might as well make a few dollars. Might as well make a few bucks. So what, my bets are, what benefit, what financial benefit? If we had the opportunity to publicize this, so we get the double portion from Ruvain. Yosef's ineligible. We'd spread it among ourselves. We're good to go. We'd each make a few dollars. Each make a few shekel. However, we've got this annoying technicality that dad's not going to be so happy about this, so we've got to keep it under wraps. So we can't publicize it. 
וכל היום הם יהיה בספק שמא יוסף חי ונעבד, אולי ארץ רחוקה נמכר. Dad's always going to have doubt. Maybe Yosef's dead, maybe really he's far away. We will have doubt, was he sold far away? Even after dad dies, Yosef's portion will be put in escrow. Since there'll be no proof of his death, because we can't celebrate his death, there'll be no financial benefit to us, because we won't get to split Yosef's portion. It'll be put in escrow, and maybe they'll discover he's still alive. So my betza. So this plan is not yielding us one penny. One penny. So therefore, Let's sell him. And then we'll make money. He'll be sold into slavery in perpetuity in Egypt. Why? The law is... When it comes to a slave, the slave has no real ownership. Whatever the slave acquires automatically goes to the Baal, automatically goes to the Adon, to the master. Our dad knows that. He's not going to leave a portion to Yosef that's only going to go to his master in Egypt. Now, not only do we get the money from the sale, then we'll get access to Yosef's money as well. Wow. Talk about the callousness. Now you understand a little bit why Chazal, why Chazal criticized Yehuda. Last comment. Where's Rabbi Maskutz? I'm sorry, I'm going over. Last comment. Look at this Rashbam. Who, who exactly... How did the sale work exactly? How did the sale work? They saw Yishma'ilam, but when you keep reading the text, Vayavru anashim midyanim socharim. Now, other... Um, Wayfarers come, merchants come. Vayim shechu vayalu as Yosef min abor, they take him out of the pit, and they sell him liyishma'ilam. So who are they selling him to? The Yishma'elam, the Medjanim? It's very unclear in the text. So the Sforno writes, They did the sale with the Yishma'elam, were the, were the in-between for the Medjanim. In other words, why did you need to use an intermediary? The brothers sold to the Medjanim through the Yishma'elam. Why? Says this far now. Because who are the real traveling merchants? The Ishmaelim or the Mijanim? The Mijanim. Which means they may come back someday to see Yaakov and his sons on their way through town selling their wares. And they can say, Hey guys, you know, whatever happened to your brother that that day you sold to me? And they were afraid the Mijanim would recognize them. So to conceal their face, they used a, an intermediary. They used a broker. And the Yishma'ilim were the broker in the sale to the Midjanim. That's the opinion of the Sforno. But we'll end, look at the opinion of the Rashbam. Says the Rashbam Abor. They were eating lunch and they stayed far away from the pit where Yosef was, because they didn't, you know, they didn't want to hear his cries. It might have disturbed their sandwich. They thought the Yishma'ilim would come, but before the Yishma'ilim got there, the Mijanim came. And so they first sold to the Mijanim, who then sold to the Yishma'ilim. The brothers didn't know. Yishma'ilim. 
So that is the opinion of the Rashbam. There was one more opinion. Uh, I don't remember where I saw it. That they sold to the Ishmaelim specifically because they thought they're our cousins. At least they'll treat Yosef gently because the Ishmaelim are members of the family. At least they'll take good care. I forgot exactly where I saw it. Okay, there's a lot more to talk about here. I'm sorry we didn't get as far as we hoped. But wishing everyone a wonderful day.